This podcast is brought to you by Illuminate, the Lehigh Business Blog. To learn more, please visit us at business.lehigh.edu slash news. Welcome. I'm Jack Croft, host of the Illuminate podcast for Lehigh University's College of Business. Today is March 21st, 2022, and we're talking with Judy Samuelson, founder and executive director of the Aspen Institute Business and Society Program about her new book, The Six New Rules of Business, Creating Real Value in a Changing World. Samuelson, also a vice president at the Aspen Institute, is on campus today for a roundtable discussion with Lehigh business student leaders that's part of the college's year of learning on the theme, The Corporation and Society. Prior to joining the Aspen Institute, she worked in legislative affairs in California in banking and New York's Garment Center, and ran the Ford Foundation's Office of Program-Related Investments. Thanks for being with us today, Judy. Glad to be here. Okay, I'd like to start with a quote I'm sure you're familiar with from Milton Friedman's essay written for the New York Times in 1970, which was six years before he was awarded the Nobel Prize for Economic Sciences. And at the time, Friedman wrote, there is one and only one social responsibility of business, to use its resources and engage in activities designed to increase its profits so long as it stays within the rules of the game, which is to say engages in open and free competition without deception or fraud. Now at the Aspen Institute, you've led a 10-year campaign to disrupt Friedman's narrative about corporate purpose. What have you seen over the past half century as that was increasingly became kind of the standard in business that led you to want to overturn that? Well, again, thanks for having me. Um, You know, there's a lot that Friedman got right, but I think that the extent to which, and this really took off in the 1980s and then into the early 90s, the idea that the best kind of determinant of business success was the share price shareholder value creation. So business school students at Lehigh and everywhere else are basically taught that the purpose of the corporation is to maximize shareholder value, if they're a public company anyway. And that that aligns closely with profit maximization. I think what we've seen in many respects is kind of a hollowing out of what we believe is possible through... um, through the creation of corporations. I mean, corporations are created at, at, at their heart in order to enable um, activities that you cannot accomplish through an individual's own resources and, and contacts. You know, corporations are licensed by the state and they are granted certain powers and limited liability in order to do things that are, I believe, are in the public interest. And... Um, of course, of course, companies need profit to both, you know, survive and, and, and flourish, if you will. But single objective functions, I think, never end well. And I think we've been living through an era in which the intense focus on the stock price has hollowed out the long-term investments that we need for companies to be able to operate successfully, to prepare for risks that are abundant and are, are growing, and to 
you know, produce goods and services that are of high quality, but, but under a business model where the, the value creators are really compensated fairly for their, for their time and their input. And I think, um, you know, we're seeing the impact of shareholder value, share price maximization or shareholder value as the organizing principle. It's, it's a driver of inequality today. And it is, um, sadly, um, the pressure that it has put on companies means that they're not doing the kinds of investments that I think are necessary for the long-term health of the enterprise. Now, you mentioned the idea of, of value creation. And the, the book that you've written now um, talks about creating real value. So what is the difference between the real value you're talking about and the the value that's been um, kind of, the, or the definition of value that's been the standard for the past half century? Well, I think real value, I think there's some characteristics of companies that create real value. I already mentioned one of them. I think they, re, they, they, they reward, they sufficiently reward those things that are absolutely instrumental uh, to the health of the enterprise. They have to sufficiently reward workers, employees. Uh, they, need, they need to be well compensated for um, you know, the work that they do to create value at the, at the level of the enterprise. They need to get things priced right. You know, if you don't price the real inputs to the enterprise, um, you know, you find yourself in the value extraction business rather than the value creation business. And there's lots of examples of that and some that have hit um, hard in the last decade or so. Um, I think we could talk about, you know, Purdue Pharmaceuticals. We could talk about the tragic um, failure of Boeing, um, you know, VW and Dieselgate, you know, Wells Fargo and the creation of, of uh, selling false accounts. Um, these things happen because there's such an intense focus on profit maximization that companies essentially lose their way. Um, but it's also, it's also um, you know, the, an important kind of calibrator of value is, is, is a, you know, a principle of how long-term focused the company is. And you know, there's this notion that the Native Americans had about seven generations. You know, you need to, you need to assure that the decisions you make today will stand for seven generations. That was the, the concept. And, you know, that's a, it's a metaphor for something that actually is very, very accomplished, very difficult to accomplish. But ultimately, it is all about time frame. And so companies that are value creators, naturally, they really have kind of a sustainability mindset that they are they're stewards of resources and think about um, how to make decisions that stand the test of time. Mm -hmm. And it would seem then within that definition um, would explain why you include uh, climate change, for example, as one of the, the things that are, have to be part of any value creation for, for a corporation. Um, that if the actions they're taking are going to limit the number of generations we have on the planet, mm -hmm. um, you know, regardless of the immediate profits, that's not a good thing. You know, corporations are critically important institutions. They're very powerful. They have a lot of influence. 
And we need them at the table to solve our most complex problems. And climate change clearly falls you know, in, that, in that domain. We need you know, industrial organizations to you know, embed the real costs of operation. And climate is just the most exaggerated form form of that. And so we both need business making the kinds of investments that are required in order to address climate change uh, aggressively, but back to the, the current state of play, um, you know, we're not getting that. You know, our tepid response to addressing climate change, a lot of that, some of it anyway, is uh, returns us to the idea of companies that are driving to this single objective of stock price, which is is not an enabler of long-term investment in addressing the kinds of um, you know crises that we're facing in in, the, in that domain in particular. You know, it's it's expensive doing the changes that are needed um, is expensive, and if we're returning what has been the case for the, over a decade now, if we're returning, if we're hollowing out the treasury to return to give 93% of the profits to the shareholders that doesn't leave a lot of money either to withstand the kind of crises that we've been through in the last couple of years during COVID, um, to make sure again that people get a fair wage for the, for the work that they contribute, or certainly to do the kind of massive, expensive investment that's required to address climate change. And we're seeing that in real time. The amount of money that companies are investing in share buybacks, you know, share buybacks are just a they're, you know, depending on who you talk to, they're either, you know, a way to give a return to the shareholder or, or to manipulate the stock price. But if you're returning that much of the free cash to the shareholders, you're simply not retaining enough to invest for the future. Mm-hmm. I'd like to go through the, the six rules, and we'll, by necessity, obviously be talking about them and rather, you know, briefly compared to the, the details in the book. Um, the first one where you start is reputation, trust, and other intangibles drive business value. And you contrast that with the old rule of hard assets determine firm value. So talk about that shift that you believe needs to be made and how we think about business value. Well, if you think about the companies that are at the kind of the top of the stock market valuation uh, tables today, you know, you're talking about the big tech companies, you know, the so-called bank stocks, and you know, those companies a lot they their their value is intangible. You know, they they have intellectual property. They design products. They mostly don't manufacture products. You take a company like Apple, which is always near the top of the valuation uh, tables. You know, they don't manufacture anything. All of that is done through third-party contracts that are not directly in the control of Apple. Obviously, they, they pay the contracts, but all of that value creation, if you will, resides somewhere else. The company is brilliant at designing products, um, but has very few employees directly on their you know, balance sheet. And so you know, their real value is intangible. It's about all of these companies. It's about, it's about trust, trust. Did I say trust? They're about trust. <laughs> They're about talent, attracting and retaining talent. They're about reputation and all of the respects in which we know that that's part of the brand. And um, so it, it's a different conversation. And it's one that is much more fluid, prone to different kinds of risks when we're talking about what really creates value or what, what, is, the, what is the company worth and why. 
So it's a, it's a, it's a totally new ballgame. And, and one of the things that it's always curious about finance classrooms is that what would it take for finance classrooms to kind of catch up with that reality? And I do want to talk about uh, education um, once we go through the rules, because I, I think obviously that's part of why you're here today. Um, but also that, you know, when you start talking about future generations, you know, that's what we're talking about is the future of business. So the second new rule is businesses serve many objectives beyond shareholder value. Now that would replace the old rule that shareholder value or profit maximization is the organizing principle of the corporation, which was essentially the point Friedman was making in that opening quote. So what are some of the, the many other objectives that businesses should be serving that go beyond shareholder value? So this is, a, it's, in some respects, it's a complicated question, but on the other, on the other hand, it's, I think it's just common sense. You know, you can't run a global operation or even a domestic operation with the complexity of inputs that are critical to the company's success and only manage by a single objective function. It's just more complicated than that. And managers are, they're probably best at their ability to, to zero in and out on the various things that need to be true in order for the company to succeed. And so on the one hand, we're just talking about what makes is commonsensical for business. You can't, you can't only have one objective in the view. Um, you know, there's this theory that if we um, focus on the stock price or on shareholder value that somehow, you know, rising tide lifts all boats or, or that that's a, simply a way for, it's a good marker for how the company succeeds. But I think, I, don't, I just think that's not true. It, you know, it's not turning out to be true anyway as we see some of the costs of managing the way that companies um, zero in on the stock price today. So in 2019, the Business Roundtable, which is, is the, you know, our largest kind of trade association of, of many of our largest companies in the country, they came out with this bold statement and they essentially said the era of you know, shareholder value maximization, that's over, that's not how we really manage. Um, and we need to be attuned to all of our stakeholders. I don't like the word stakeholders because I don't think that's a management principle. I don't think that actually guides companies about how to manage better. I prefer the examples of companies that have stepped back and said, what business are we in and what needs to be true in order for us to succeed? And that's going to be different if you're in Intel or if you're Walmart. You know, these are the companies are not the same. These industries are not the same. And they have different things they need to, um, that need to happen in order, in order for the company to succeed. And so I'm always drawn to the example of, one of the things I write about, I'm always drawn to the example of, of um, Merck back in the day when it chose to go ahead and manufacture a drug that was a cure for a horrible disease that was common in the river valleys of Africa called river blindness, or it goes by another name, but that was a common name. And what the CEO, um, the then CEO, Roy Vagelos, taught me is that he knew that was the most important thing to the success of Merck was actually the science, the scientific talent, you know, the drug the, the discovery of drugs, that if he didn't keep that at the center of the enterprise, he would be hollowing out the capacity of this extraordinary company to be able to create 
to create real value over the long haul. And so in doing that, he understood that even if, if they had a drug that was not commercially viable, but it was still an important cure for a disease like that, they simply had to move forward. And I think embedded in that was a real notion of purpose and um, in some respects of, again, back to common sense management principles. So there's much more to say on this yeah. uh, topic of corporate purpose. What also seemed to me to be a good example of your third rule, which is corporate responsibilities defined far outside the business gates. Um, obviously, if, if profit was not the motive there, and I, I think there's, it obviously hasn't always been the case, but there's been a sense that one of the things corporations should, should be is a good corporate citizen where they are. But your definition seems to be much broader than that, than just kind of the, we're not talking about just the surrounding community now. You know, given the scale of, of these multinational corporations and um, the, uh, the consequences of decisions and how critical and how many ways in which they influence you know, the broader landscape, it's not surprising particularly that they become the target of of uh, NGOs, you know, non-governmental organizations and nonprofits, who are perfectly capable and willing and eager to use a case example of a brand that is not delivering on a general principle that they believe is true, whether it's around, you know, water conservation or again climate or human rights or, you know, fair wages or, you know, a, um, a well-functioning supply chain, one that kind of respects, you know, rights and, and labor up and down the food chain. You know, those things mean a lot, and these NGOs have learned to be able, how to, you know, they're, they're not beyond harnessing your brand to make the larger point. And there's lots of examples of that. And they are compelling, and they are aided and abetted by social media and the ability to kind of turn a reputation of an enterprise overnight. They are not, they're not necessarily targeting the worst actors. Often they're, you know, they're using the brand, again, to make a larger point. And, um, but there's stunning examples of that and also stunning examples of how these uh, organizations can amass the following and the, the media support to actually transform an entire industry or uh, you know, kind of supply chain. So it's almost like taking the power of the corporation and turning it on its head and saying, how do we deploy this enterprise in pursuit of a generally kind of critical important input or resource? And so we're seeing lots of examples of that today. But the company's not defining the rules. The rules are being set by people that are way outside the gate, and this, these are examples of that. Now, inside the gate, the employees, and you've, you've talked about, mentioned um, you know, paying fair wages a few times now. But beyond that, your, your rule number four is employees give voice to risk and competitive advantage. So what needs to change um, in the roles that employees play in business? I call it uh, accountability from the cafeteria. And now that we're starting to go back to work again, it's, we can you know, see whether or not that's actually true. But you know, if you think about who holds companies to account, neither investors nor consumers are very good at that. 
you know, consumers rebound to price and convenience. You know, enter Amazon. Um, investors come in lots of, you know, shapes and sizes. They don't all agree on what they want. They have different time frames. They have different levels of risk tolerance. Um, but they're all bound by wanting a, to maximize return. I mean, you know, there's, there's a lot of so-called ESG or responsible investors that may say they have other priorities. But the noise of the stock market itself is, you know, kind of perpetuates the, in, the focus on financial return. Employees, on the other hand, are a different kettle of fish. I mean, they, the employees benefit if the company you know, they're very aligned with the health of the company itself. And increasingly, employees, and I wouldn't just call out, you know, younger employees, millennials on down, um, but they are particularly adept at it. And again, the social media is an enabler of this. They are, they're kind of the mediators who sit in between the business enterprise and its values and its intentions and its reality and a whole host of different issues that sit kind of outside the gate by, but are critically important to employees, whether in their walk as you know, community citizens of a local community or kind of global citizens. And they are willing to make those connections between these external risks and what the company is doing that is, um, you know, whether it's, it's really creating value or extracting value. And uh, we have lots of examples of employees being willing to step up and to drive those kinds of changes. I could talk about Amazon, I could talk about Google, you know, the Google walkout, which kind of put the Me Too campaign on the, on the radar. Amazon employees that use their own shares of stock to force Amazon to at least have a conversation about climate and what was their posture there. There's lots of examples and I don't think this is gonna change anytime soon. A couple of things that you touched on on that one, I think, apply to rule number five as well, which is culture is king and talent rules. Um, Want to contrast that with the old rule, which is capital is king, shareholders rule. So that really is a profound shift in um, how you look at you know, the value of a business. It is a profound shift, and it, you know, it takes us back to, you know, it's a different era when when General Motors was the largest company in the country and had the largest valuation you know, as a, as a public company, it had maybe a million employees just in the United States alone. And of course, it was a hard asset, you know, hard asset world. We already, we already talked about that. But today, companies that go public, that do an initial public offering, they may not actually be raising stock at all. They may just be directly listing their stock on the market to enable their early investors uh, an exit. So they raise their money in private markets and then they go public in name only. They're actually not raising capital. They don't need capital. You know, tech companies are capital light. You know, they don't have hard assets to sustain and continue to build. So, um, so it's an interesting question, like why do we put so much importance on the stock market? You know, it's kind of becomes a self-fulfilling game over here, but it's really an aftermarket. It's not, it doesn't directly, the company gets their money at the IPO. If they raise money in the public markets, they receive their money at the IPO, and no companies return to the stock market today to raise capital. We do, we're seeing the opposite happen. And so, you know, what does matter, a tremendous amount, is the culture of the enterprise, their ability to retract, attract and retain talent, and... Um, and the, you know, these companies that are really 
you know, human-centered design excel over, over time. So there's a lot of great examples to draw from, um, but it's a very different quality of, of, of need, if you will. You know, the human capital, I don't even know if that's a very good word for it. We have to put capital at the end of everything. But the human quotient is critically important today. It is much more important than financial capital. All right, finally, rule number six. The old rule and new only differ by one word. Uh, the new rule is co-create to win, and that replaces compete to win. Well, I don't think, you know, I don't, Whatever it is that keeps you awake at night, we don't solve it one company at a time. You know, let's go back to climate change. I mean, this requires a, a complex set of things to happen. And I think we're starting to see more examples of companies, industries that are leaning in, you know, kind of task forces at the level of an industry that are talking about changes in protocols and processes and and the way an industry works overall with enough power at the table to actually raise the bar on the entire industry. We're, we've seen it in mining and metals. We've seen it in you know, the airline industry recently issued um, some pretty uh, dramatic changes in terms of how they look at climate change and what needs to be true in order to um, kind of bring the health of that industry behind the changes that are needed. So there's a lot of examples of that, but also across sectors. You know, you're seeing collaborations between NGOs, as I was talking about, and, um, and for-profit corporations, and of course government and, and business always collaborate. We just don't always see it. Okay, getting back to that, that idea of the, the seven generations and, and having an eye on the long term. Obviously, uh, business schools um, are key players in that. And what changes do you think need to be made to create the business leaders that we're going to need for the difficult times ahead? Well, it's definitely, it is, it is a leadership question. Um, I write about some leaders that I really admire. Um, you know, the CEO's job has changed profoundly. You know, the CEO today uh, is the leader of a community of interests. CEO isn't just a leader of an enterprise defined in kind of its local footprint. Um, it needs to build the trust of a, a set of players, including its own employee base, first and foremost. And so that's a, that's a profoundly different job. I think what we need from business schools is both to recognize that and to equip leaders to, um, to be able to think with those broad and long-term interests at play. You know, it's tricky for business schools because as students exit business, they're often taking, you know, they're taking on kind of, um, you know, entry-level jobs that need, that often have kind of a high kind of technical quotient of skills that somebody wants to replace them so they don't have to do that part of the job anymore. They may be directly, you know, it's only a person a couple of years out who's actually recruiting somebody to take their place. Where if you think longer term about what is it that that individual needs to understand what kind of a, what kind of attitudes and um, 
attributes do they need to actually end up being able to manage well inside the enterprise? So those are, those are two different things, kind of getting your first job and succeeding you know, 10 or 15 years down the road. And that's one of the things that business schools have to balance. And it's a complicated one because of the pressure to have the right skill set to be able to get a job to begin with. But I think there's also other ideas that we need to land here. I mean, I do, I'm a critic of business schools that um, are kind of awash in shareholder primacy thinking and are not finding ways to kind of step back from that and think about what is it we need to prepare people for a world that is more complex than that. Um, but you know, there's all of these ideas around circular economy. We, we assume in business education and, and in our economy generally that it's based on growth and growth is you know, kind of central. And yet we live in a, you know, in a environmental reality that you know growth isn't the answer. You know, different kinds of products and services and ways of limiting growth are actually going to be critical to our future. So, you know, there's first principles at play here, and I think um, we're seeing, uh, you know, boomers are finally starting to step down from jobs, although you know, not all of them, not all of us. Um, and it gives an opportunity for fresh thinking to come into business schools, and I welcome it. For a last question, then, I always like to end on one that's future-looking. Um, as you've traveled around quite a bit, meeting with students across the country, do you feel optimistic about the future from the students that you've interacted with? That's, you know, you're asking that question at a particularly hard time. I, you know, for a couple of years I haven't done much, I mean, I've taught a couple of classes, but I haven't had as much contact directly with students, although there's certainly a lot that's happened online. You know, I think they're, I think they're pragmatic. I think they see the complexity and don't always see, you know, they know that there are no simple solutions here. And I think that they're actually struggling with some of the same, you know, questions that plague managers and people much more senior. You know, it's like, you know, kind of why am I here? And um, what I'm hopeful about is that they understand, that these students understand how much the equation has changed and how important, how, how much weight they have in the system. You know, that they, they don't have to accept the status quo. You know, they're entering the market at a very interesting time where they actually, you know, have, hold a certain amount of power in the system. I mean, one of the things that we need innovation around, real innovation, is um, kind of a recalibration of, you know, power within firms. You know, we need employees to be able to uh, step up and to be able to be heard. And we need governance systems and management systems that take that into account. You know, it's not gonna get solved the old way. It's not gonna be around, you know, the resurgence of unions, although they are maybe on the rise. It's kind of too early to know. But I think the students who are entering the market today can enter the market with some confidence that they should be able to pick and choose a company that they feel um, excited about working for and proud of being a part of and that they can be raising inside enterprises some of this complexity um, and kind of, you know, whatever, what's the expression around finding the complexity behind the simplicity or what's, what's that expression? Um, you know, I, I think they've got the right tools to do it. And um, 
I'm hopeful that they understand the importance of, of um, moving into enterprises that are real value creators, you know? Finance is not, is not the only game in town. There's other things that we can be doing, although there's, that's where a lot of the jobs are, and there's new methodologies that are coming into finance in terms of measurement and value creation that I think are also an important piece that, that these students are equipped to kind of be thinking about. So I'm optimistic there's a lot on their shoulders. <laughs> All right. Judy, thank you so much for joining us on the Illuminate podcast today. And also for coming to Lehigh to share your experiences and insights with the Lehigh business faculty and students as part of the year of learning. I'm enjoying it very much. Thank you very much for having me. Judy Samuelson's book, The Six New Rules of Business, Creating Real Value in a Changing World, was published in 2021 by Barrett Kohler Publishers. The Year of Learning is an annual college-wide initiative that focuses Lehigh business students and faculty on a particular area of interest through classroom activities and campus events. It is just one example of how Lehigh's College of Business prepares and challenges faculty and students to generate new ideas for education and future knowledge in the field of business. This podcast is brought to you by Illuminate, the Lehigh business blog. To hear more podcasts featuring Lehigh business thought leaders, please visit us at business.lehigh.edu news. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at Lehigh Business. This is Jack Croft, host of the Illuminate podcast. Thanks for listening.